This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and in this episode, we're looking back at a period in history where war was actually outlawed between nation-states. This is an odd one for me, because I was always told that there is one guarantee in all of human history, and that is that there will always be another war. No matter how tragic that may be, that is the nature of the international system. However, If you look back through history, you'll see that there is a short period in time when the Kellogg-Briam Pact was put into action, named after US Secretary of State Frank Kellogg and French Foreign Minister Aristide Briand, when they used that moment post-First World War, a moment of mourning and suffering, but also rebuilding and a hope for ambitious change to ensure that states promised not to use war to resolve disputes or conflicts of whatever nature or of whatever origin they may be. To take us through this remarkable history and to explain how the Kellogg-Briam Pact continues to influence war and peace today, we have the brilliant Professor Honor Hathaway from Yale University. Honor is the author of The Internationalists, How a Radical Plan to Outlaw War Remade the World, along with Scott J. Shapiro, and she was previously the Special Counsel to the General Counsel at the US Department of Defense during the Obama administration. So there is truly no one better place to take us through this history and to show us why it is perhaps now more important than ever to learn from the mistakes and the successes of the Kellogg-Briand Pact. Enjoy. Hi, Ona. Thanks so much for coming on the History Hit Warfare podcast. How are you doing today? I'm great, thanks. How are you? I'm good, yeah. I'm actually especially happy that you're on the podcast today because it's a welcome coincidence that we're talking on the day of the NATO summit where NATO members have come out and said that China poses a systematic challenge to Western liberal democracies. And some people are saying that this is marking a ramping up of tensions between the West and China. It could be the start of a Cold War or even a new era of great power conflict. But in your research, you take us back to a time when war was quite literally outlawed. So take us back to that point in history. What period are we talking about? What triggered this banishing of war? Yeah. So the book that I wrote with my colleague, Scott Shapiro, The Internationalist, focuses on this moment in history 
when the world came together and outlawed war. And it seems like a completely absurd idea, the idea that countries would outlaw war, that law could be used to rid the world of war. And in fact, it looks even more absurd when you look and you realize that the moment that this took place was between the two major world wars, between World War I and World War II. It took place in 1928. And for years, people have treated this moment as kind of a laughing stock. It's completely ridiculous. It's known in the U.S. as a Calabriand Treaty. If anybody's heard of it, it's simply mostly to make fun of it. Um, and as an example of kind of the folly of international law, the idea that you would use a treaty to try and end war. And we thought about it that way, too, to be honest. When we taught international law initially, we thought, well, this is kind of a silly thing. And, you know, it does show kind of the international law it doesn't always achieve what it hopes. But then we started looking at it more closely. We dug deeper and we realized that there was actually a lot more to it and that it was unappreciated how important this moment really was and that it, instead of laughing at it, that we ought to actually appreciate that in many ways, the world order that we've had, that we've enjoyed for much of the last century is thanks to this treaty. So tell us a little bit more about this period that the pact rises in reaction to. We're talking here about the horror and the brutality of the First World War, right? Is this an American-led initiative? Because, of course, the United States doesn't have the same levels of casualties. But when I was going through some of the archives in New York a couple of summers ago, there was definitely quite a palpable, incredibly persuasive public reaction that such wars, such horrors, the loss of a generation of the youngest, best and brightest should never happen again. So is the US a lead in this? Yeah, the US played a really significant role in the effort to conclude a treaty. And there was a massive, obviously, this was a global effort. So it wasn't just the United States. I mean, part of the story that we tell is a way in which Kellogg and Briand actually kind of try to outsmart one another. And neither of them actually really wants this treaty. And they kind of back one another into a corner. So Kellogg actually was really opposed to the idea of this treaty. It was really activists among them. Levinson, this sort of Chicago lawyer that we'd never heard of before, but he was a guy who got it in his head that he was going to find a way to end war and started a non-governmental organization to outlaw war and work together with women's groups that were fighting to outlaw war in the wake of World War One, And they agitated for a treaty that would bring an end to war. And Kellogg thought this was a terrible idea. He, he, he really opposed it. And an American put the idea in Brian's head to propose the idea back to Kellogg and put it in the newspapers. So this kind of made it impossible for Kellogg not to respond. He put this offer in the newspapers that France was reaching out and wanted to outlaw war between them. And would the United States join France in outlawing war? Kellogg was completely furious and incredibly upset at this. But of course, he couldn't not respond to it. So ultimately, he had to respond to it. And he said, well, yes, you know, we'd be happy to do that, but it shouldn't just be between the United States and France. This should be open to the whole world. And he did that because he figured Briand was going to hate that idea of opening it up to the entire world because what Briand was trying to do, he thought, and in fact, this was what Briand was trying to do, was kind of rope the U.S. into something of an allyship 
but not sort of specifically in those names. And the U.S. had been very careful not to enter into any mutual defense treaties with any of the European powers after World War One because it didn't want to get dragged back into war. And so Kellogg thought that he could kind of trick Briand or kind of get Briand to drop the idea by making this a kind of global effort. But then, of course, Briand couldn't very well say, well, then, you know, never mind, I don't really want to do that. So he kind of got roped into the idea. So neither of them particularly wanted to do it. But at the same time, I think once they realized, like, look, these disarmament treaties aren't going anywhere. Our people are really desperate for a way to bring an end to war. And maybe there's actually something to this. And maybe there is a way in which if we can make this a global agreement, it might make it less likely that we'll end up in yet another conflagration. That's really interesting because when you look through the history of great power politics and the history of war as well, you see so many occasions where states get lost on a path of escalation towards conflict. But it sounds like here they got lost on a path of escalation towards peace, which is an interesting way to look at it. To what extent did they actually reach a point where they had outlawed war? So this treaty, what's known in the U.S. as the Kellogg-Briand Pact, known elsewhere as the Paris Peace Pact, the General Treaty for Renunciation of War, the Briand-Kellogg Treaty, so it's known by many different names. There was a signing ceremony in 1928, 15 nations gathered to sign it, and then it traveled the world and was signed by more nations than had signed any treaty at the time. So it really was a treaty that had legs, so to speak. I mean, countries were persuaded that this was a really important goal and an important mission. And I think they had the thought that, look, we need some way to try and avoid war. We need to find some way not to find ourselves back here again. And while this is not perfect, maybe it's a start. And I think part of what we try to do in the book is say, looking at it from a modern perspective, when you read this treaty, and it's very brief, it literally fits on a postcard, it seems kind of like a small thing. It basically, they renounce the recourse to war as a means of engaging in international policy. And you think, well, that doesn't seem like such a big deal, because of course, nobody's going to use war as a tool of international policy. Like, well, you know, that's sort of an absurd idea. But that's our modern perspective in a world that's been made by that treaty. In a world where war is now outlawed, the idea of outlawing war seems kind of like an unnecessary thing to do. But we don't think that, for instance, If Mexico fails to pay debts that it owes to American citizens, the United States should go in and make war against Mexico and seize a bunch of territory to make up for the failure to pay these debts. But in the world that they existed in at the time, that was actually a pretty normal thing. If a state failed to repay debts or Mexican citizens failed to repay debts to Americans and they tried to resolve that peacefully and they failed to, they could go to war and they could not only go to war, but they could take land and recompense for the failure to pay the debts. And that was considered a perfectly normal, natural way of doing business um, in what we call the old world order. And what the Kelly-Briand Treaty did is it set us on a path towards a new world. It didn't end war, obviously, we have World War II, but it began to create a new set of legal constructs that gave us space to be able to eventually create what now is the United Nations Charter and the modern legal order that we have lived with for more than seven decades. Well, you're completely right. It didn't outlaw war, as you say. We had the Second World War just a few years later. So when did this Paris Peace Pact, the Kellogg-Briand Pact, start to fall apart? Well, it fell apart pretty quickly, actually. 
So you started us off by talking about China, and China was actually the victim in the first major violation of the Kelly-Briand Pact. So Japan invaded Manchuria and took over huge, huge portions of Manchuria in 1931. And it claimed that Chinese brigands had set a charge on the Japanese-owned South Manchuria Railway. Um, it later became clear that that wasn't in fact true, that it was some Japanese low-level soldiers who set the charges to give themselves an excuse to invade Manchuria. Um, they didn't like the moves towards peace that were being made. They were frustrated by their inability to actually take any significant moves, and they thought this would give an excuse to go to war. And, and it was taken as an excuse by the higher-ups in the Japanese government to wage a massive war and take over huge territory in Manchuria. And what's striking about this is both China and Japan were at that fancy signing ceremony for the Kelly-Briand Pact in Paris. They both signed it. They're both parties to it. So they had both formally renounced recourse to war to resolve their differences. And yet here they found themselves at war. And the rest of the world was really puzzled by how to respond. Because the problem is that in the past, the way in which you would have enforced a treaty like this is, well, you would have threatened to go to war. Because that's the way in which treaties had always been enforced up to that time. And so how do you enforce a treaty that says you can't go to war? <laughs> if you can't use war, which is your usual tool for enforcing the law, then how do you enforce it? And so it created this real puzzle and it led them to realize they really hadn't thought ahead much. They really hadn't thought through, okay, what are we going to do if this treaty is violated? How are we going to actually enforce it? What are the rules going to be? And part of the story we try to tell in the book is the way in which that then sets in motion a whole set of efforts to try and figure out what a world where war was outlawed might look like. What might the rules be? How would you respond to international law violations? What would you do differently? And they had to work that all out. And that took a great deal of time and set the stage then for what would become the United Nations Charter after World War II. But that's such an important moment in history because it allows for a creativity, an imagination, a new way of thinking about how to solve the world's problems that doesn't involve that initial response of just going to war and compelling your enemy to do your will. So tell us a little bit, what sort of measures do they come up with in that moment? How do they allow their creativity to go wild? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what we found fascinating about this, because you think if you've lived in a world where war is always a way in which you solve problems and suddenly you don't have recourse to war and you have to come up with something else, what do you do? You know, it actually requires a like really serious creativity to kind of work through what are our alternatives? What are different tools that we have? And ultimately what they come up with is this really creative idea that remains in many ways the core of our international enforcement today. And that is, they basically say, we're not going to recognize anything that you do. We're going to refuse to recognize the seizure of the territory. We're not going to recognize this as a part of Japan. We're not going to do business with Manchuria. We're not going to recognize any of your passports. We're not going to recognize your stamps. We're not going to buy things. We're not going to sell things. We're not going to transport things across that territory. So it was like economic sanctions on steroids. It was basically closing off this illegally seized territory from the international commerce. And that was the tool that they came up with. They came up with this idea of, well, 
if we can't go to war against you to try and enforce this rule, maybe what we can do is just completely close you off and refuse to do business with you and refuse to interact with you. And that proves to be an incredibly powerful tool, it turns out. Well, how successful was it? Because when you're outlining those measures, I'm just thinking that that is, well, usually common practice today. You think about Putin invading Ukraine with his little green men and women, and you think about the legacies of that that continue within the international system today. It was just last week that we had the meeting of the G7. And of course, you continue to see that Russia is notably missing when it comes to dialogue on things like Arctic security. Russia has been removed from all of those or almost all of those forums, especially when it comes to discussing security. So these are now staples of the international system. So how successful were they back then? Yeah, this is exactly right. And this was for us a kind of aha moment in writing the book, the realization that this really had not been a tool that had been used in the international order before this moment, before the response to the Japanese invasion of Manchuria. They hadn't really tried this out. And this was a kind of, in a sense, the like first field test of economic sanctions and kind of, well, is this thing going to work? And it worked pretty darn well. And they started using it much more frequently. And it becomes the core of the answer to the question, if we can't use war, then what? And you're absolutely right to say this is now the foundation of the way in which we respond to international law violations in the modern era. It's what Scott and I call outcasting. So we use this term outcasting to kind of define a whole set of techniques that have developed over the course of the last several decades in kind of developing all the mechanisms. What they did with Manchuria was they kind of completely closed it off. So it was very all or nothing. And The tools we've developed over the last several decades are much more nuanced and there's a kind of ability to kind of sculpt the sanctions in response to the violation. And often what happens is if a state violates a set of rules, what happens to them in response is that they lose the benefit of the international cooperation that they are denying to others. So the World Trade Organization, for instance, what happens if you put in place an illegal tariff? The WTO doesn't send in the WTO armies. (laughs) Nobody goes to war over it. But what will happen to you is if you're found to be in violation of the rules that govern the WTO, then the state that was harmed by it is allowed to put in place a countermeasure. And that is basically denying you the benefit of the lower trade rules that you would otherwise have access to. Now, take Russia, which you mentioned. When Russia invades Crimea and seizes it illegally, What does the world do? Well, the world is not going to go to war over it, not least because, of course, Russia has nuclear weapons, but also because going to war in response to this kind of an action is generally illegal. Although if Ukraine had requested help in self-defense, in theory, legally, a state can act in self-defense under the UN Charter. But I don't think anybody's eager to go to war against Russia. So what did the world do instead? What it did is it put in place really unprecedented sanctions against Russia, put in place significant economic sanctions. As you mentioned, Russia was excluded from a number of international organizations that had been party to, excluded from a number of meetings, and a number of economic sanctions that were really designed to have a kind of long burn, that would have a kind of down-the-road effects that were really significant for the Russian economy. It was tricky because they had, of course, to manage the fact that Europe in particular is very dependent on Russian energy resources. And at the time, Europe was just coming out of a recession and so was not eager to kind of plunge itself back into another. And so the tools that they developed really meant to try and kind of put the pressure on Russia 
while not destroying their own economies in the process. So that, of course, is one of the challenges. What caused the anarchy? How did medieval migrants shape the language I'm speaking right now? Who won the Hundred Years' War? Could England's lost patron saint be buried under a tennis court in Suffolk? How did England's last medieval king end up under a car park? And were the Dark Ages really all that dark? I'm Dr Kat Jarman. And I'm Matt Lewis. On Gone Medieval, we'll uncover the most exciting and unexpected stories about the Middle Ages, hearing from the best and brightest minds. We will disentangle fact from fiction, bring you the latest discoveries, and reveal how the so-called Dark Ages laid the foundations for much of the world we're living in today. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It is a difficult dilemma, isn't it, about just how hard to go? Because, of course, you could completely isolate Russia from the international system and you could have some pretty dire consequences that come from that as well and some extreme reactions in terms of military force. So it is a delicate balance that you have to try and put in place. But are there any lessons that we can take back from the Paris Peace Pact? Because when I've looked at this and I've read the books on it through history, you've often seen it as being dismissed as an act of folly 
folly, most definitely an unmistakable failure. And when you look at it within that particular interwar moment, it does look like it is somewhat naive. There is one guarantee in human history, and that is that there will always be the next war. Does this signing of the pact amongst so many countries, does it lull the Allied powers into a bit of a false sense of security, especially when we look back at the history and we see that Germany and Russia are already coordinating on how to share knowledge, technology, power, factories later on into the Soviet Union and conspire on technological innovations and strategies and tactics. Were we naive in that moment? It's a great question. I mean, you have to remember that at that moment, Germany was a very different Germany. Gustav Stresemann, who's representing Germany at the time, is a representative of a Germany that's sort of a Germany of the Enlightenment. I mean, it's really an extraordinary moment of kind of grand resurgence of Germany as kind of an effort to bring it back into the fold of Europe. You know, this is before the rise of Hitler. And so we're dealing with a very different Germany at the time. I think it's hard to put the fault on the Paris Peace Pact here. I mean, I think in many ways, you know, obviously, you know this well, I mean, in many ways, the harsh sanctions against Germany and the effect that that had on the politics within the country and therefore the shift in the government and the changes that ensued as a result of that. I mean, those, I think it's hard to fault the politicians who were at the Paris Peace Pact and the activists who worked towards it for not anticipating that and for not seeing the shift in government. I think what you can fault them for, though, is not thinking ahead a bit. What comes next? You know, and I think this is a lesson I've taken from it. You know, it's very easy to have a treaty of sort of grand pronouncements and declare victory and go home. But you really have to think through not just what are we declaring is no longer permissible, but how are we going to actually make this work? You know, how do we actually put this into practice? What does happen if the following 10 things occur? And thinking ahead to that, they must have known that this treaty, which was very brief, was not working through the details and that there was a lot of work to be done. And I think one could have expected that instead of kind of going home to their capitals and congratulating themselves for a job well done, that they, what they should have done is not waited for Japan to invade Manchuria to try to start figuring out what the rules were going to be if somebody broke it, but start figuring that out from the get-go. And I think they should have done that earlier so that they would have been prepared because it took them more than a year to figure out the answer to sort of what are we going to do in response. And that lag made a difference, I think, in terms of the ability to really respond. And I think it may have also encouraged Italy, perhaps it provided some encouragement to Germany in the sense that there aren't going to be real consequences. And that I think they can be faulted for. So I think the lesson to learn, and this is a lesson I think is generally true of international law, is international is a really important tool, but by itself, it's not enough. International law is one tool in the toolbox, but you have to be thinking through how are you going to actually bring it to fruition? What are states supposed to do? How are they supposed to respond? What do you want them to do in response if there are violations? Does everybody know what those are going to be? And we could apply those principles, for instance, to climate change right now. And we have the Paris Agreement, portions of which are non-binding. I think we have to be thinking ahead to the next agreement 
what do we anticipate? Not just are we going to say we want to stop climate change, but like what exactly are we expecting states to do and how are they supposed to do it and how is that going to be enforced and what are the tools that we're going to use to do that? I think international law doesn't work well unless we think ahead about all those contingencies. But how do we do that? How do we think ahead? The The future is notoriously difficult to predict. And when I'm brought in to NATO meetings or to advise militaries or governments, it's always with my historian's hat on. It's drawing those lessons from history, perhaps not direct analogies. I think that can be misleading, but just trying to set the scene of what has happened in the past and how that may play out in the future. Now, I know that you yourself have held policy roles within the Obama administration administration in the Pentagon, probably when Chuck Hagel was there, I assume? Uh, Yeah, just at the end of Hagel's period in office, yeah. So I'm really keen to know, what did you do? Did you take your own lessons from history and use them to try and figure out that difficult task of what could happen next? Yeah, I mean, I think there are several lessons that I draw from it. One lesson is that we tend to think that the world that we're in is the world that's always going to be that the rules as they are, are the rules that are always going to exist. And I think one important lesson that I draw from this historical work is that things have changed and they've changed radically. And in many ways, the Paris Pact, for all the failings of those who brought it about, it was also a moment of great creativity and hope and an effort to kind of come together and create a better world by creating this new set of rules, rejecting old set of rules that were relied on using military force to achieve the wills of the state and come up with a different set of rules. They didn't think it all the way through, but I do think that they are to be congratulated for having the creativity and imagination to imagine the world could be better. I think we've fallen into a kind of complacency, though. I think we've fallen into complacency where we think that the world that we live in under the UN Charter, where war is illegal, and yes, it's not perfectly observed, but we would find it absurd for the United States to go to war to collect debts against Mexico, for instance. And there's certain sets of rules that we take for granted in this modern era. I think one thing I brought to my work at the Department of Defense is it doesn't necessarily have to always be that way. And we can't rely on it always being that way. And there's a temptation sometimes to break the rules because the temptation you know, in the moment is, well, this is incredibly troublesome and frustrating and this country is not doing what we want them to do. And we can kind of come up with a creative justification for why this in fact is compliant with the UN Charter. And every time we kind of push the rule a little bit further, we kind of bend the rules a little bit further, closer and closer to the breaking point. I think we get to the point where the whole thing may just collapse. And the lesson I brought from my historical work is that could be really awful. (laughs) And that could be, you know, if we lived in a world where we didn't assume that war was not a legitimate tool for states to use in their ordinary day-to-day interactions with one another, this would be a much more brutal and bloody place. And that's a very dangerous world. And I think it's a very possible world. I think most people don't think of it as something that could be possible, but I think it's entirely possible. You know, if we give up on the prohibition on the UN Charter, the prohibition on use of force in Article 2.4, and if we expand self-defense in Article 51 so far that it becomes the exception that undermines the rule, then I think that we are headed back to something that looks more like the old world order. And then I think we are going to find ourselves in a much more violent world. And so that was sort of my lodestar as I was working, even on sort of day-to-day 
events, like this is a really important set of principles to try and uphold. Like the UN charter is meaningful. These rules have given us a unprecedentedly peaceful world for the last seven decades. Yes, there have been horrible things. I'm not denying that been lots of horrible conflicts. But if you look at it in comparison to the hundred years that preceded it, it is remarkably more peaceful, despite the fact that we have machines and technology that kill a lot more people a lot more quickly than we used to. So I think that's something really important to preserve and something we shouldn't take for granted. Do you think, and this is a cheeky question, but do you think that America has taken this for granted? Does America have to bear some of the responsibility for the eroding of important international norms? And I'm going to butcher a quote from the late great military historian Sir Michael Howard, where he says that America's war on terror has done more than anybody else to really erode the foundations of international law that it helped set up. And I especially want to focus on, I suppose, the previous four years under the Trump administration. We saw there that there were violations of state sovereignty, uh, especially in terms of Iraq, where you had the extrajudicial killing, the assassination of state actors by drone strikes. I mean, all of these are a breaking of some pretty important norms that are meant to keep peace and stability within the international system and set in their own place some worrying norms for the future. Do you think that Biden has got a lot of work to do now to reinstate America's reputation as a nation and a global hegemon that upholds and doesn't break down down these important international norms and laws. Absolutely. I think that the United States has been both the sort of best actor in maintaining the international order in some ways, the not the worst, but has contributed to the erosion of the international legal order at the same time. Obviously, the post 9-11 evolution of what was initially called the war on terror the ongoing war against Al-Qaeda, Taliban, and all the various associated forces attached to it, and all the various ways in which we've expanded Article 51, rule of self-defense, now to apply to non-state actors and apply to all kinds of situations that, you know, before the 9-11 attacks, we would not have imagined, we would argue that this exception applies to. And this is, again, the worry that I have, that this exception now is becoming so normalized and so expanded that it's undermining the rule. But what's interesting when you look around the world is that it's not just the United States. I mean, the United Kingdom has been right there with us on a lot of these missions. We've literally been flying side by side. And of course, we've already mentioned Russia and China. I mean, the irony is that these countries that are the ones that helped create this international legal order are the very ones that seem to be ready to kind of erode it and begin to even potentially tear it down. And Part of what I wonder about is like, do they fully understand what it is that they're doing here? You know, do they understand that their predecessors were the ones who had seen such brutality in war, had seen so many people die, had seen what war could bring about, and they forged an agreement they understood was not perfect, but they thought the most important thing was for us to not go to war with one another, that these countries that they had to create an international system that reinforced the prohibition on war, that put at its core the outlawing of war. Article 2.4 is basically a reinstatement of the Paris Peace Pact, the Calabrian Pact, by putting at its core this prohibition on use of force, what was supposed to be a very limited exception of self-defense. And they sat down and hashed that out. And they kind of knew what they were doing. They understood that there were certain times they were going to want to use force. They weren't going to be allowed to. And and that was a compromise they were willing to make to give us a more peaceful world. And now their successors 
are engaged in actions that are really undermining that legal order. And, you know, again, I think Americans, the UK, France, Russia, you know, they have a very privileged role in this system because as by virtue of their role as members of the Security Council, they have the ability to veto any action the Security Council is going to authorize. And that's in many ways a kind of legacy role. And I think they're not fully appreciating that if you tear the system down, not only are we going to have a much more violent world, but I don't guarantee that you're going to be the one leading it anymore. And this is, you started with the question about the rise of China. We do see the rise of China happening right now. China taking a bigger role in the international order. I think one of the big questions has been kind of what role is that going to be? Is it going to be a player to try and reinforce and hold together the international order, which of course does also give China literally a seat at the table. It has a seat on the Security Council. Or is it going to play the role of spoiler, which it has been playing in many ways for the last couple of decades? And I think these big players need to appreciate that they get a lot of authority out of their role in running the world and sitting on the Security Council. And then it's not in their best interest to tear this thing apart because what comes up in its place may be much worse not just for the world, I think it will be worse for the world, but it'll also be worse for these individual countries who are not going to be able to play the dominant role that they played when these rules were initially written. Well, Ona, thank you so much for coming on the Warfare Podcast. You've really shown us it's so important to revisit this history now more than ever. Where can people read more about this? Well, they can read the book, The Internationalists, that my co-author Scott Shapiro and I wrote. I hope you'll find it compelling. It's meant to be fun to read, not just an academic tome, but a kind of historical overview of this period, kind of what preceded it, why it came about. And it's named for the people, The Internationalists, it's named for the people who came up with this idea about law and war. And we're really interested in who were they, what were they trying to do, and celebrate their creativity and originality and thinking that maybe the world could be very different if we got rid of the scourge of war. Ona, thank you so much. You're always welcome on the History Hit Warfare podcast. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.